we're continuing a series. If you're new here, we're continuing a series. And so there's some important things I need to fill you in before we move forward um, in on this. But um, let, me, let me start off with this idea. This, this series that we've been on for the last, this is, this is number five in a six-part series. It'll end next week. Um, and uh, I wanted to mention, because I keep forgetting this, that we've offered up multiple times um, to, uh, if there's any question, Q&A, uh, that you, uh, questions that you might have for us, that you can email us, but we've actually started emailing out and posting online a Google form that allows you to be anonymous. Um, some of you said, hey, we, I'd like, I got some questions. I don't know that I want you to know who asked this question. So, um, so feel free to do that if you, um, if you want to fill that out. It uh, gives you the option not to put your name on there. So any questions that you might have. Um, I have purposefully at the very end of this, like so in the last few sermons, you've noticed there's more information than we probably should be putting in one sermon because a couple of them were a sermon and a half. Um, literally, I took one and split it and did half one and half the next week. And so um, the, 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 the strategy here is that by the time we get to this next week, um, I will have enough room to just stop and answer questions. And, uh, and so I don't have um, anything that I'm specifically trying to gear towards, though I do have some um, you know, questions that are common that I'll probably throw in there if nobody throws any in. But if you have any questions, please go online, email us this week. We can send anyone that link, um, but the link is uh, on our Facebook. Um, I think it's on Instagram, as well as it's in some of your inboxes. If you have any questions, please send them out to us. All right, this is how I want to start. So I want you to imagine something um, that could be an experience of yours or not. And, um, but I want us to put ourselves in, in someone's shoes for just a second. So I want you to imagine that you're growing up, um, and then there's that moment in adolescence or puberty when you're hanging out with your friends and the conversation turns from cartoons and candy and video games or whatever it was that you were into, into deeper discussions that are more um, you know, serious and, and conversations about the opposite sex. Now you start talking about the cute boy or pretty girl that catches your eye. You start to notice that someone's hair or their figure or smile is appealing to you. Then you got the awkward school dance moment, right, where you got that weird little dance that we all end up doing. It lends itself to pairing off and deciding, like, who, who do I like? Who am I attracted to? And you see all of it happening, but you don't seem to be tracking with everyone, and so you wonder, wait, when, when am I going to feel like that? I don't, I don't seem, seem to have the same feelings or ideas or desires as the friends that I have. Maybe it just hasn't happened yet, and so you kind of wait for it to kick in later, and you wait and you wait, but you just realize, like, I don't feel the same as they do, and then maybe you realize that the way they talk about the opposite sex is the way that you feel about the same sex. And so you ask yourself, wait, is this, is this what people call being gay? That you suppress it because you don't know how people are going to respond to it. You don't know how your parents are going to respond to it. If you're a Christian context, you maybe have been um, or seen the way that people have been treated. You hear terms like an abomination being thrown around. And you just think, look, I'm going to wait this out and pray, right? Like that's what I'm supposed to do, to just pray. And you even ask a pastor or a pastor, on, someone on staff, a friend to pray with you. But it's usually generic because you don't want to let them know fully what's going on. So you say, I just have like relationship things that I need you to pray for or purity or any of the other kind of things that we tend to generalize with. And after you wake up day after day and morning after morning, maybe for months or even years, asking God to give you what it seems like others have, an attraction to the opposite sex, and you realize it's not happening, right? You pray because it's easier that way. You pray because, like, I didn't ask for this. You pray and nothing changes. And maybe you've gone out on a couple of dates with somebody of the opposite sex trying to spark something, but it doesn't work. And eventually after years, 
of quietly struggling with it, you decide this just is the way I am. I need to embrace it. I say that because I want us to understand that this story is true for so many people inside and outside of the church. It's a real narrative, and it can be filled with distress, it can be filled with confusion, it can be filled with frustration, it can be fearful. And today, as we move forward into our next sermon, we're talking about the Bible and how it engages with the gay community. The story I told is just one, and maybe that's not one that you've experienced, and maybe it is something that you've experienced, but what I want us to do is to imagine how difficult it would be to navigate our world through something like that, especially in the context of early adolescence and childhood, when any kind of difference, right, any difference can make you a target to ridicule. I found out this week that there are some kids on the bus who call another kid on the bus uh, uh, off-brand. My kids didn't know what that means, right? But, but clearly, he's not the one wearing the Nike swoosh on his, on his shirt, right? And so any little difference at that time, think about how mean kids can be in that moment and that you can point something out and how fearful something that is more personal to you would be if you realize, like, I'm not like that or them or these people. Maybe this is your story, or a story of someone that you know, the story of someone that you love. Maybe it's not your story, but it helps those who have not had this experience to recognize that we have a possible detachment from it. To recognize that because of that detachment, that we might be cisgender, heterosexual people in a world that normalizes our orientation, and it can create a calloused heart or a misunderstanding or an approach that is numb when it gets brought up. So again, what I want us to do is to recognize, uh, like we have this whole series, that the church has caused a lot of damage in these areas. And so it's not my heart or the heart of the leadership at Common Ground Northeast to add to that damage, to, to create stress, and I just want to make sure to set this thing up in a way that creates some expectations before we move forward. Some are the ones you've heard already, and then there'll be a couple of additions. So let me do the, the normal ones I've been saying. A couple of expectations um, is that I want you to know that this is PG-13. This whole series has been, and we've been trying to make sure that we offer children's ministry to that extent. Um, and so if you're in this room, you're either here watching or listening online because you're an adult or an adult has approved of you being here. And this is a qualifier that you're in a place emotionally to have this conversation. We know that sexual trauma can cause issues and uh, that, that don't just go away, you know, that, that are hard to walk through and can be complicated. And so what can end up happening um, is that you may be here and you're like, hey, it might be good for me to know what this is, but I'm just not emotionally ready to hear this from anyone, you, the church, especially maybe. And so I'm just going to opt out of this moment. And that is perfectly okay. All right. That is perfectly okay. Second, we want you to know that we want this place to have a, a tone of safety uh, and, a, and a tone of acceptance, that the scriptures will often confront our ideologies, no matter what they are, and our beliefs as a means to guide us into wholeness. And while I might challenge you this morning and challenge myself, I don't want to alienate anyone to be as charitable and, and to be as charitable and gracious and truthful as the Bible tells us to be. Once again, I want everyone in this room to know that you're welcome in our church. You're welcome in this conversation. Even if we disagree, we love you. Even if we disagree on some of these things. Um, I had a friend of mine who said uh, uh, recently, um, he said, if you don't end up preaching to yourself at some point in this series, you didn't do it right. 
So eventually everyone's toes kind of get stepped on, even mine, right? And so what I want us to do is to kind of come into this knowing this is part five of an ongoing conversation, right? The Bible and sex, and at this point we are leaning heavily on information we have already taught, okay? So there's a lot of summaries. I'm going to point back to Genesis, and I don't have time to, pre, to re-preach that. I'm just going to have to point back to that and know that we preached on that in, earlier in this series, and there's multiple times. And so for you know, starting about last week, this week, and next week, we're leaning heavily on stuff that we've already taught. And so if you came in for the first time, you, you're going to need to listen to those if you want the fullness of it, but you also might misunderstand some things. And so just know that going forward um, if you haven't caught them all. And then additionally, I'm a pastor today. I want to kind of locate a couple of things. I'm a pastor who teaches the Bible, speaking to Christians at a church, right, Um, and and those wanting to learn about this topic. If you are a follower, I don't have the expectation that you necessarily agree with me today, but I do ask that you consider it. If you're not a Christian listening to this, I have zero expectation that you would adhere to it uh, unless you just decide to, right? And so the idea is that um, I believe the way of Jesus is best and, and the way of life that all people should follow. Um, but, but I don't have expectations that someone who doesn't follow Jesus would, would care about following Jesus, right? Uh, to the extent that it might just be something of interest to them. And so I, um, I've, I've read this once, and I'll, and I'll read it here in just a second, a second time. Um, as a pastor, this is not my area of expertise. I teach the Bible, but I have done as much research as I possibly can to come at this with an awareness that I think is helpful. Um, let, me, let me go ahead, and, th- and then maybe this is that, the, the, the other thing that needs to be on. Um, as we talk about these things, this comes across more like a lecture, right? And more like a, uh, like a clinical conversation, not a coffee talk. Kind of, kind of conversation. And so um, w- know that the tone of this is not meant to be cold, but it is meant to be clear in its presentation um, as, as it moves forward. And we'll explain a little bit more of that as it goes. Let me read to you from our statement of faith, which applies to this sermon. I've read it once earlier, but I, I think it um, applies in this one too. So this is our statement of faith, um, and, and it's um, the statement on Mary. It says, we recognize that all persons are made in the image of God, and are to reflect that image in the community of believers, in home and in society. We believe in the family, celibate singleness, and faithful heterosexual marriage as the patterns God designed for us. We quote Genesis, or, or look to Genesis 1, 26, 28. Again, this leans more towards truth than it does shepherding, right? If you, if you didn't catch that, um, you, you got to hear that. The second thing here, um, and before I get started... Uh, it is just that, like, my hope is to bring clarity to that statement. And if you're like, why do you have that position? I'm going to give you some reasons why I believe we have this, this opinion in this statement. It will unfold as a reasoned theological case. Um, and so be, be aware of that. Um, and then I want us to be clear for this purpose. I think being unclear on this topic is unhealthy and unloving. And so this, this, is, this is why I think that. Multiple churches who I've, I've talked to and had conversations with, how did you handle this? Some of them would self-describe themselves as affirming or non-affirming, all right? It was on both sides of this coin. Have it, they've all advised me this, become as clear as possible, as quickly as possible as you can on this subject. Why? Well, because people fill in the gaps when you leave it in ambiguity, and eventually when they find out what you really believe, if they didn't believe that, feel lied to. They feel like there was some sort of bait and switch that took place at some point. All right, and so um, I want to read to you because an online organization called Church Clarity, which I'm sure some of you are familiar with, um, curates a database of churches based on um, clarity of their communication of policies as a means to protect the LGBTQ community um, and also has statements about egalitarian and non-egalitarian. And it states this, this is like their catch line, ambiguity is harmful. 
Clarity is reasonable. And so I think clarity is the most loving thing that can be done in this situation. Second, I think that it's important for you to know that I believe through conversations, (laughs) through podcasts that get shared, Facebook posts and other social media stuff and etc., I guess is what I meant to put in there, Um, a strong, strong majority of our church, I believe, identifies as affirming in our congregation, all right? So I kind of want you to know where the social location of our church is as I present these things. Now, with those two things being said, I want you to hear this. I am not going to use the term affirming or non-affirming as a description for our church today. I don't think it's helpful. Um, And while I want to bring clarity, I think that those are kind of loaded terms with some attachments that I don't think are helpful. Um, And these, these are why, and at least two different reasons. The terminology plays into this American political war that has been being waged behind the scenes, whether you knew it or not. And, and it has some attachments to it. Both the right and the left have co-opted the church's doctrine to gain and secure a Christian voting block. Am I, kind of, am I clear on that? I know maybe if there's more information that would be helpful, I don't have time now. But both the right and the left have co-opted the church's doctrine to gain and secure a Christian voting block. I don't want to participate in any of that. All right, And so I'm going to opt out of both of those terms. The second thing is that those blanket terms come with some assumptions, some grouping of multiple ideologies. If you say that term, you're saying this and this and this and this and this and 15 or 20 different things that may or may not or should or should not be attached together all get lumped into the same thing. And so what I want to do in that is not use those terms. They cause confusion. And at the end of the day, um, I'm going to break this up, parse it out into what I think are four really helpful categories, um, which is a justice and civic engagement response, a shepherding response, a missional response, and a doctrinal response. Again, I'll return to these at the very end of the sermon. All right, that's my preamble. Everyone ready? Kind of like, all right, here, here we go. Okay, so what does the Bible say? Um, so so the kind of the thing is that there's famously about six pro, what is considered prohibition passages that directly address our focus. Three of them are in the Old Testament. Three of them are in the New Testament. All right. So you have Genesis 19. Um, you have Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, and there's a verse in each of those. Then there's three in the New Testament, Romans 1, 26 through 27. We're going to focus on that today. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10. Now, this doesn't include any of the parts where the Bible says the term sexual immorality um, as a general statement. Um, these sit outside of those. We have already spent plenty of time on the Genesis verse, and so what I'm going to do is point you in that direction and just give a quick little summary of what we mentioned that. So in Genesis, we learn that we have established that God made humanity in his image. He made them male and female, right? Though we might challenge some of our gender definitions. Um, They are alike in humanity, but different in sexuality, and that sex itself was created with a fourfold purpose, illustration uh, in covenant marriage, right? procreation, love, and pleasure. Now, just to reiterate, um, we get sexuality wrong when we try to define it outside of all four of those things, right? And so what we have is, you know, if, if procreation is your only value, then you can see what Abraham did in the Old Testament as correct, right? Like procreation is the only thing. I'm going to make sure, and he, he justify it. You can justify marginalization in all of these situations, but just to give one point, when you pull one of those out and make it supreme and they don't counterbalance each other, you get into all kinds of problems. And so the idea is that a, a purpose of sex has to include all four, illustration, procreation, love, and pleasure, all right? 
Now Leviticus 18 through 20. Some of the strongest language regarding same-sex sexuality are often used as what you know, people call them clobber passages, right? Because that's how people tend to use them. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to go back and dig deep into these ones. But what I do think is important is for us to see the context of those is in the context of holiness. And so as God's people leave Egypt, right? Remember, put yourself in their scenario. God's, leaving, God's people are leaving Egypt, um, and they're to be set apart from the nations around them, to become a distinct people who is uh, re- reserved for God's purpose, but then also are, are to become holy as God is holy. And that's all that word means, a separate, set apart, distinct. And so we are to be holy as God is holy. Um, uh, Pastor John Tyson, he points this out. He says, you have holy people, the priests, with holy clothes in a holy land at a holy place, using holy utensils and holy objects, celebrating holy days, living by a holy law so they can be a kingdom of priests in a holy nation. You catch the theme, right? There's this thematic of separate set-apartness, holiness, making things distinct from all the rest. And so the laws were not meant to be restrictive necessarily, but to become a code which helps them to live out Yahweh's command to be holy as I am holy. And so what I think often happens with Leviticus, and I'm not going to read those verses. I'm going to get um, as quickly as we can to kind of the main text I want us to look at. But, but often what we see is we read these verses and we think to ourselves, well, that's like Leviticus, right? Like back in the day, that's, it's outdated, right? And, and, and at best, you're picking and choosing verses from the Old Testament to apply today. Well, um, I, I th- so, so we think if it used to be wrong to do these things, like you get, you, you get this agreement association, like it, it, of course, I get same sex was pro, prohibited, but like you also weren't allowed to eat pork, you weren't allowed to trim your beards, right? You couldn't even gather sticks on a Sunday, right? All of these things kind of go together. Um, and so what I want to do is to point this out. Just because some laws are obsolete doesn't mean all laws are. Um, lots of the Levitical laws are still binding on Christians, right? And, and to qualify that, what I want you to hear is that we have specific ways of categorizing the laws, right? There's moral, civil, ceremonial, and we apply the Old Testament law to determine their relevance today in lots of different um, ways and factors to kind of determine those things, right? And so the main factor is that the idea carries over from the Old Testament and into the New Testament. And so what I want to do is move over to the New Testament verse in Romans 1. I think it's useful to know that this is in the Old Testament because it's consistent, but, I, but, but what we're going to study mostly here is Romans 1. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Romans 1, chapter 1, verse 18 through 31. Um, I, I chose this of the three because I think it's the clearest of the three. Um, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 
Don't, okay, so, so just now, first, this is what I want us to do. Acknowledge that Paul seems like a blast at a party, right? Like just the best guy, you're hanging out with your friends and you see Paul in the corner and you're like, I'm going to go in this direction, man. Like comes out hot with wrath of God language. Um, and so it's hard sometimes to read Paul's uh, wording. Um, but, but what I want you to see here is that Paul is not speaking from hubris. He is the self-proclaimed chief of sinners. He's not pinpointing one group or saying anything that there is a struggle someone else has that he also can't say he can find one in himself. And so what he wants to do, though, is to say, let's all come into alignment and come into agreement with Jesus. Paul is trying to, or sorry, is tying us to Genesis where God has given this design for things and that you want to be a part of it because in this design you can find joy and you can find freedom and you can find flourishing in it. But the rebellion in Genesis 3 has our hearts and our heads mixed up that we confuse truth for lies. We can discern creator from creation and we exalt ourselves over God. And so it's a difficulty, right? We're kind of trying to figure this thing out. Well, Paul goes on to, to, to give some examples here. The first one is this in 26. He says, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, this has to be read in context with the next part. And since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Parents, that's a good one to just check mark right there. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Okay, so this section is in a larger section of Scripture that, that Paul is creating this argument for something. And this is what his argument is trying to do. It spans from, from verse 18, where I started, all the way to chapter 3, verse 26. So it's a large section of Scripture. And what Paul's trying to do is to make a case for us so that we are aware that without Jesus, all of us, all of us, I'm going to say that again, all of us are guilty before God. And so first, in this, in this section, he's directing all of the sins that the Gentiles are guilty for. Then he takes and points the finger at the Jewish people, his own people, right? So catch that. This is what they do. Amos is actually, um, the book of Amos, the prophet Amos, uh, arranged his entire book like this. This is what they do, the Gentiles, the, the people who don't follow Yahweh, right? Over and over. And as he's rallying the crowd saying, yeah, they shouldn't be doing that. And how could they? And then he says, but look at yourself. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, oh, wait a minute. Like, you're no better. In fact, he goes as far as to say your worship is no good to me in Amos. And so the first part points at Gentiles and the second part points at the Jews and says you're just as wicked as they are. And then third, Paul shows this because here's the good news after all of those movements. While the law is helpful to reveal our sin, it is inadequate to save us. 
And so the conclusion is that only Jesus can save. We can't save ourselves. Only Jesus can save. I want to read again. Pastor John Tyson said this to kind of drive this point. The whole point of this is to point towards God's grace expressed to us in Jesus. So whatever we've done, whether we are Jew or Gentile, gay or straight, murderer or moralist, porn addict or pride addict, it's been put into a coffin and sent away as dead, and now we have life in Jesus. And so there's hope, there's, a, there's an up and out as he digs us into a multitude of descriptions of sins that any one of us, like you get to the end of it and you're like, okay, so basically knowing's getting into heaven, right? I mean, that's just the final conclusion. But pulls us up in that third chapter and says that the point of this ultimately is God's grace. So there's three movements that take place just in the scripture that I read. I know it's a, a big chunk of scripture, but I think that that's important to have those sections together. And this is what happens. The first thing is an exchange of the creator for the things created, which is idolatry. And then it says in that idolatry, there is a substitution of God as the priority in your life for the self as the priority in your life. And there's a conclusion based on that. And the conclusion that those things, that, that, uh, that, that if we buy into those things, we eventually embrace lies instead of truth, creation instead of creator, our own desires instead of God's, and that which is natural according to the design of God becomes unnatural to us. That which is unnatural becomes natural. And then he gives a bunch of examples, right? A whole lot of examples. And so I want you to know that the highlight here um, that we're focused on, verses 26 and 27, is sexuality, but it's in the midst of a bunch of other things that need to be dealt with. And it isn't meant to point out that this one amongst other things or other sins is worse, but to realize that this is just something the Romans happen to be dealing with. And so he sets it out on its own, and then he lists a whole bunch of things and says, look, I, I'm, I'm not making this any worse than anything, but I'm also not going to act like it needs to be ignored or sidestepped or, or that we should just not talk about this and act like it's in approval according to God. And so the most, um, all of these things need to be kind of taken in that context and to understand, you know, what is taking place in this. And so one of the things I want to do, I just want to address, there's kind of one very common, um, I guess, you, I, I don't like the word progressive, but that's the term that's often used in it. So progressive interpretation for the New Testament um, here. And that, that this, this description, specifically in verses 26 and 27, um, are referring to non-consensual or coercive sex. And so the idea is that the type of same-sex relations being described here is exploitative, not consenting um, same-sex, uh, sorry, and not consenting same-sex monogamous partners. Um, so this is condemning rape, prostitution, pederasty, not necessarily same-sex um, relationships, but these very violent or um, uh, things that would be taking advantage of people, older uh, men having sexual relations with teenage boys, um, which was a common thing during that time. And so as we kind of, as I looked at this, and, and, and we've been, as a leadership, have been looking at these things for the past two years. I mean, literally the past two years, this discussion, probably longer than that. But as far as I've been in it, two years that we've been kind of, okay, what does the Bible say about this? What's the possibilities here? What is this interpretation? And weighing these things against these, uh, against themselves, trying to figure out, so what is actually the truth here, God? Help us out, because we want to love people well. So as we look at it, like, is this possible? But when you just look at the text, there's, this, there's no mention of masters, there's no mention of slavery, there's no mention of prostitution, rape, or pederasty. 
In fact, there's several different Greek words for that term, pederasty, um, but none of them are used at all in the New Testament. So there were options that Paul could have gone for. Additionally, these types of relationships, while they were very well known amongst men, they are not known amongst women during this time. And so women being specifically mentioned in this verse uh, works against that idea. The text then goes on to say that they were consumed with passion, with one, for, they were consumed in passion for one another, indicating mutuality between the two. So, man, as we've been studying this, it's like, how, how do you weigh these things against each other, and how do you understand what the, what, the, what the scriptures, where one person wants to say, it's so clear, why are we even having this conversation? Other people are like, hey, there's a lot on the line here, and we need to have this conversation, right? And you're weighing these ideas against each other. This isn't just a conservative opinion that that's what these verses are about. I mean, there's multiple scholars who would call themselves affirming or non-Christians um, that, that uh, would be a part of the gay community that would identify and say, hey, look, as we've looked at these verses, uh, we don't see any, uh, any way that these make sense to, to put God's stamp of approval on these ideas. And so Lewis Crompton, who's kind of a very well-known, brilliant scholar, he's gay as well, and he wrote this book called, uh, it's very well acclaimed, like it's very, very famous, very popular, called Homosexuality and Civilization. He says, nowhere does Paul or any other Jewish writer of this period imply the least acceptance of same-sex relations under any circumstance. The idea that homosexuals, I know that term is outdated, I'm reading from a quote by the way, might be redeemed by mutual devotion would have been wholly foreign to Paul or any other Jew or early Christian. Bill Loader, similar situation, he would say he's a Christian um, and he's affirming, uh, and he also rejects this idea of same-sex relationships in terms of the ancient world saying that they are not exploitative. Loader says um, on Romans 1, 26 and 27 that, that this includes, but we're by no means limited to exploitative pederasty or sexual abuse of male slaves. It's inconceivable that Paul would approve of same-sex acts if, as we must assume, he affirms the prohibition of Leviticus 18, 22 and 20, 13, as fellow Jews of this time understood them. And so as we look at all of these different perspectives, you know, you're trying to figure out, okay, God, tell me, tell us what we need to, to work on, tell, adjust us, right? And there's plenty that I've asked us to adjust, and there's more that I'm going to ask us to adjust in the heterosexual community at the end of this. Um, but, but God, like, in our ability to say, I'm, I want to be adjusted in this, is there something I'm getting wrong? And as I kept researching this, I'm like looking at this, and I'm weighing the size, I'm like, I just, I don't know, maybe, maybe this is going to do it. How that's not quite fixing that situation. What about this tension over here? And it's not working. And then I start reading non-Christian views and people who are affirming, and they're like, no, it doesn't make sense either. That's not what's happening here. And so the idea of prohibiting only exploitive same-sex relations, it's not biblical. It's not historically accurate. It seems like Christians, non-Christians, everyone agrees on that. The idea here, and this is going to be a, a, a direct, and a, I'll kind of talk about what we do with this here. The idea here over and over is that as we've searched, gay sex is not endorsed by the Bible. Now, there's a few questions that you should have off of that as you're trying to make sense of this, and I won't be able to address all of them, but let me try to address a few. I think it's important for us to understand that a doctrinal um, position about same-sex marriage doesn't depend on just these passages in the New Testament, um, but also in its foundation inside of the Old Testament, and that we've also been looking at God's design and the pattern for what he considers healthy, flourishing ideology out of Genesis, that sex difference is necessary part of what marriage is, and that all sexual relationships um, outside of marriage are, uh, are, are not given um, uh, uh, approval. 
So when you add this with the historical context, and there's other things, it's like as I've been researching this and digging through this over the last two years, trying to figure out how to make this work, wanting to love people well, wanting to include as many people as possible, and to follow Jesus, but as a pastor, as I'm coming to these conclusions, I'm realizing over and over, just hitting these walls, that there isn't a lot of flexibility in this area. And that God, if we want to believe in his guidance and his ideas that, that, um, that thriving and, spe- and, 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 and following Jesus is the best way in which we are to live, that, that we see that God doesn't give his endorsement on this. I've looked for it. It's simply not in the scriptures. And so there's questions, right? Like, so what, were bo- people born this way? And what do we do with that? What about thoughts and fantasies, etc.? Jesus said, if you've thought it, then you've committed it, right? Well, can there be, is there such a thing as a gay Christian? Um, I, I, don't, I don't have time to answer all of these questions, um, but I do think people are born with this at times, not always, but I think probably more often than not. Um, and I think that as we interact with these things in any way, shape, or form, that, that we deal with our thought life as a way of committing them over and over to Jesus in the way that he would want us to do. And to say, God, do what you need to with my thoughts, my ideas, knowing that, um, that not all the things that come in and out of our hearts and minds are of God. I do think it's possible to be a gay Christian. Um, but I also think inside of that comes some mandates to live celibate in the midst of it, right? Um, these are my attempt to give one-line answers to literally questions that could be answered over an entire sermon, right? And so I wanted, I, I, if there's more on these that we want to jump into, I do think um, there, that we have next week to be able to dig into some of this stuff, uh, but, but we don't have time to go any further into those ideas today. So what I want to do is, again, ask you to send me your questions, and we'll try to kind of work these things out in a way that is a little bit better and more fleshed out for us by next week. Um, but what I wanted to do is to kind of, as I've, answered, as I've ended every sermon over the last few times, so even if I agree with the theology that you just said, what do I do with this in real life? Because I think that's where the rubber meets the road. Like, that's where we're sitting in a situation of like, dude, you don't need to tell me the same six tired verses over and over again. We get that. You don't need to keep saying this thing over and over. But I do think, to some extent, I wanted to make sure this was grounded in the reality of Scripture. But I do think, uh, as, as I don't see much flexibility specifically in a doctrinal response, which is what I, what I just laid out for us, I believe that there is actually a lot of flexibility in these other categories. And so I'm going to just spend a few minutes giving you some of those ideas, and I'm going to call us all into a moment of coming before Jesus and asking him to search our hearts. I mentioned before affirming and non-affirming are not helpful ideologies because I think this, among other things, are all grouped together, these four things, justice and civic engagement, response, Shepherding response, missional response, and doctrinal response. I just did the doctrinal response, all right? But these categories have been adapted um, by a guy named L.R. Holbin, wherein he describes kind of a spectrum of the modern denominational belief on this topic. And when you see terms like affirming, non-affirming, assumes they're all together, and I think they need to be separated out and talked about as distinct and individual. So today's teaching, again, was the doctrinal. This is what I want you to see inside of this. I'm going to define each one of these. Justice and 
civic engagement. When I say that, what I mean is that it involves this intersection of the church as it pertains to marginalization and liberation, right? So this could be public and it could be private, uh, but it could often be this civic engagement of what, what do you do in, in a situation when people are voting to uh, sanction or not sanction a marriage, and in doing so, you deny somebody's human rights for it. And so my example here is that if you're in a gay relationship and somebody says you can't have insurance because the state doesn't call it a marriage, that should bring you into some tension right? So you have this ideology, this doctrinal ideology that's going one way, and then you have this other thing that's like, but I don't want to like just marginalize people for no reason. And that's a basic right that somebody should have, right? Access to health care. And so I want to call you into the tension of that and say that, that maybe the obvious response isn't no there. All right? And, and so keep this in mind. This is one example, but there's a civic injustice engagement of the things I do and the stances I take and the policies I uphold have direct uh, outcomes and consequences on people who may be, act, look, and have their family arrangement nothing like you, and it is hurting them. That has to be dealt with. And so what I want to do is say just because you have a doctrinal theology on one side does not necessitate that you, that you would uh, uh, default to maybe what, what has been taught as the normal um, you know, Christian response in that idea. And so you have to be brought into this, this, this tension of like, hey, what do I do and how, do, how does what, what is normal for me cause other people distress unnecessarily. One of the questions someone asked me last week is um, the, the pronoun conversation, right? Do I use someone's pronouns? I absolutely use pronouns that people ask me to use. And there's a reason for that because I think it's loving. I think it's a part, a part of meeting someone where they're at and it's honestly just kind of rude to not do it. Now, if you've been around me, I'm incredibly bad at this, all right? Now, and, and I, like some, this is like a, this is such a serious conversation you don't get, but I get laughed at for this. Like, I'm really bad at doing this because I've been conditioned for so many years just to think in these ideas. But I do think as my civic engagement is involved, I am going to use someone's preferred pronouns if and when they ask me to and as much as I can continue to, to, to deal in that. There's a shepherding response. So there's a justice and civic engagement response, but then there's a shepherding response that we are called to love all people and care for them which is why I don't want to use clobber passages to clobber anyone. I want to seek to understand before I just jump into judgments, which is why we've taken so much time to look into these ideas and why we've taken time just to kind of reanalyze sexuality in general, that we should be good hearers before we start throwing stones and talking and asking and, act, and acting like we have an opinion in conversations we were not invited into. And so there's this shepherding response of loving people wherever they're at and accepting them. So we have this justice, civic engagement, we have shepherding, and then there's a missional response. If you're not aware, any missional, any, anytime you're on mission and reaching people, there is a negotiation of ideas of whether they can, like, where do they belong before they believe or behave and interact in those things? And so you might go somewhere that nobody knows Jesus, and they have a practice that you deem is unethical, but they don't know Jesus, so you don't expect much out of that, right? And as they transition into these ideas of knowing God and not knowing God, they're trying to figure out what are the things I'm dealing with, while the person on the other side delivering the message is still needing to deal with the things that they're still not in alignment with Jesus, 
right? There's an even playing field. But in the midst of that, you're always negotiating different things. I encountered this first when I was on the mission field um, in a Muslim country. Well, can they still call themselves Muslim? Like, I don't know if they're still following Esau, Jesus, Esau Amasi. Do I mind if they call themselves that? Are there certain practices and fasts can they participate in? In my head, I quickly was like, well, I think so. I think that's probably okay, as long as we're following Jesus and moving towards Jesus. And then I had to analyze my own heart and say, why does my default opinion with the LGBTQ community not give them that same benefit? And so I've been going through a time of reorganizing my own heart and my own mind. What parts of our lives have to be, quote, cleaned up before somebody can belong? And if you're not engaging in that tension, you need to begin doing so. There's a part of that that has to be sought out, and and, and missionaries have been doing it for years. It's just in a new context. Um, So we have this justice and civic engagement response. I believe there is a lot of flexibility there. Uh, We have a shepherding response. I believe there's a lot of flexibility there. We have a missional response. There's a lot of flexibility there. The part that I couldn't find the flexibility was what the Bible actually just straight up says on this. And so God has said, look, I I don't want to be withholding God. I want to cause flourishing and to help you believe the pattern that God designed to take us into a place uh, where in the context uh, 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 of our relationship with God is in rhythm with the things he has intended and the ways he has intended for us to live but I just didn't see the flexibility there. I think that we should be fighting in those first three areas for as much flexibility and inclusion. I know that term is a loaded term, but I think it's appropriate here in how we engage in justice, how we shepherd people, how we have missional response. And what I wanna do is point to Jesus for that example. Because when we see Jesus do it, as we've talked about over and over in this series, he does it to the extent that it's controversial. He does it to the extent that the, the people who would be considered uh, uh, conservative in his world were really mad at him for doing this. He showed so much extravagant grace in the midst of his truth that Pharisees and Sadducees were like, no, man, you're, you're working in opposition to God. And so if we are living like Jesus it might be true that we might take a few hits like that as well. That we would shepherd and be such a loving community without compromising the doctrinal response that people might look at us and say, you've gone too far. But as long as I'm in the company of Jesus and doing that, I am 100% okay being that person. And so we want to be this love and this truth to prod people towards God's intention for human flourishing because love does that too, right? And so here, here's some kind of some, some direct takeaways here. If this is something you work on, that, sorry, not work on, if this is something that you have interacted with personally, whether it's an unwanted same sex um, and you're struggling with it or you have just embraced it, this is who I am, I want you to know first and foremost that I'm sorry for the way the evangelical church has shamefully, shamefully treated you. I want to point out that they themselves have in doing so denied the Imago Dei. They have denied the grace that they themselves live under. They have normalized sins at the cost of margin, their their personal sins at the cost of marginalizing others for theirs. And and I want you to hear this because I think it's important. They will answer to God for that. And I don't want to stir up bitterness in our hearts because there's grace on all sides of this thing. But there will be a reckoning of sorts. 
And all I can say is that on behalf of common ground, that we will try to do better moving forward, to engage in this in a way that does not, that does as little damage as possible, that cares for as much, as much as we can in as many aspects of this as we can, because I want common ground to be a safe place. Our job is not to change anyone. Our job is not to reorient you or to marginalize you. It is to walk with you in your discipleship as you follow Jesus. And then the last thing is just this public response. Meaning, if this is not your orientation, but someone else you know or people that you interact with in public, I encourage you to love and to protect in so much as it doesn't violate your doctrinal position. But keep in mind, I know that that's going to look differently for you than it does for me, for someone else than it does in our family and how we operate. And so I think there's flexibility in how we negotiate those things in a community that wants to love well. And, and, and so the idea here is that if we're going, uh, uh, that this is going to look different, we're going to have to have grace on other people as they decide to, I'm drawing my line differently than you are. Okay, but I, I need to trust that you're drawing your line. Okay, we're good with that. Then I'm going to trust you and I'm going to, I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to ask God to give you wisdom as you, incur, as you interact in this um, conversation. And I need you to do the same for me. All right? Um, and then uh, the idea here that I mentioned last week here is that the nuclear family does a lot of damage in this and how we have upheld and idolized the nuclear family over and over instead of an oikos, a household model for family. And if we're going to endorse celibate singleness in our doctrinal statement, then we have to consider what we are asking of people and offer real loving practical solutions which could require an entire rearrangement of our idea of the family and our church structure. I'll give you one, one example and then we'll step out. Is if, if you ask somebody, whether they are same-sex attracted or not, and they're, they're single, and, and you realize that they don't have the same kind of uh, human interaction that you do, right? They like hugs too, and just because I'm heterosexual doesn't mean I have free access to hugs with my wife and you don't. So something has to be done there. We have a, a, an interaction with our families, like you get to be a, a, an aunt or an uncle, or you get to be a dad or, or a son or a father, right? Uh, sorry, not son, son or daughter, but a father or, or a mother. And if you ask somebody to be celibate in their singleness, then you're also saying you don't get to be any of those things. And so what does a faithful community look like that says, I recognize that pain, and I'm going to engage that with my own family structure and with our church structure so that you don't get left out on a holiday, so that you don't get left out just because your orientation is different than mine, so that you don't lose basic needs like health insurance, right? So, so, so this, is the, this, is the, um, this is the doctrinal response interacting with all of these other things in a way that causes us to say, we could just step out of this if you're heterosexual and not deal in this, but as a faithful community that wants to love people well, I am calling us to enter into this even though you could opt out. And so we want to move towards what does it mean to, 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 um, to operate in a different type of structure that offers love extravagantly, grace extravagantly, as flexible as possible in the areas that it's flexible, but still maintaining fidelity to Christ and his truth. Well, just as we started today, um, it's important that these ideals, uh, you know that these ideals don't live in a vacuum. There are real people with real experiences. Um, this is not separate from you if this, is also, if this has not been your experience. And so what I want us to do is call us into more of a move in our discipleship to Jesus. We are learning as we're doing this, and I personally will make mistakes, and I am assuming most of us will. 
We're all learning to let go of habits and hang-ups and pains and sins and lack of trust as we carry these things with us on a daily basis. And so I want us to humble ourselves before that last description in Romans. Because some of you were covetous and malicious and envied. Some of you murdered and were living in strife and deceit and maliciousness and gossips and slandering and hate and insolence and haughtiness and boastfulness. We've been inventors of evil. We've been disobedient and foolish and faithless and heartless and ruthless. The most unifying thing in the human experience is that we have all sinned. But the most powerful thing of the gospel is that we get to stop and thank God that he has made a way for us to step out from underneath the weight of that sin and to move towards him. And Tyson, I'll do one more quote as we end this. We want to point all of us back towards God's grace expressed to us in Jesus. So whatever we've done, it's been put into a coffin, sent away as dead, and now we have life in Jesus. May we all walk under the banner of the love of Christ Jesus. Let me pray for us. Now, Lord, thank you um, for your word, that your word is truth, God, and even though they can be um, difficult for us to engage with, Lord, you've, you've given them to us. You've decided to open up that communication way and to speak to us, Lord. And so, Father, if we're going to ask others to adjust themselves in, in their life experience, God, would we be willing to adjust ourselves to accommodate them and those amongst us in, in our mission, in our care and shepherding, and in our civic engagement, Lord. Lord, open our eyes to the things that we've normalized that possibly marginalize people who are not like the majority. Open our eyes and convict our hearts to make changes, God. Help us to be flexible. Help us to be solid where things are solid, God. Uh, but ultimately, Lord, that we wouldn't shrink away from the difficulty of what you have asked us to do as disciples of Jesus Christ, no matter what side of this we are on. And God, as we look forward to one of the greatest moments of history, the birth of Christ over the next month, God, could we come at this with a fresh understanding of what you've done for us, with a fresh understanding of knowing that you have created victory where there wasn't one, that you've created life where there was a grave, that you have created love where there was a deficit of it and darkness. Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see, and we ask for this in the name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen.